Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Uh, Monday to Friday, 10 to 1. You can listen on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. And uh, it was quite silly today. Throughout the show today, we were talking turnips because of uh, Therese Coffey saying this in the House of Commons. Uh, but it's important to make sure uh, that we cherish the specialisms that we have in this country. Uh, a lot of people would be eating turnips right now. So yeah, lots of turnip chat. And in fact, a bit later on, you'll be able to hear what happened when I went to Turnips, the fruit and veg stall and restaurant in Borough Market, where they cook lots of turnips. And we'll speak to the chef, Thomas, there. Uh, so that's coming up in uh, a bit later on. We've also got our big thing today. This week, I hosted the Parliamentary Book Awards in Parliament. And one of the winners was uh, Baroness Luella Benjamin. So I caught up with her, had a chat with her about her book... What are you doing here? Which apparently people ask her an awful lot. Uh, we'll also talk about her relationship with the Queen and a little bit of play school as well. Uh, so that's coming up uh, a bit later on on the podcast. But first, as ever, let's kick off with the Columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. <laughs> yes, uh, it's that time where we speak to two of our folk columnists on a Friday morning and we are joined by Manveen Rana, uh, host of the Times, his story of our Times podcast. Morning, Manveen. Hello. Nice to have you with us. And Katie Balls, a political editor, the Spectator, who has written uh, for the Times today. Morning, Katie. Morning. Let I tell you what, we, we'll come to turnips in a moment because it's very important that we do discuss turnips. But first of all, Katie, your column really interesting today about uh, Tory wannabes, and you'd think that the last thing anyone wants to do right now is become a Tory MP or throw their hat in the ring to become a Tory MP. But you're actually saying this might be a great time to become a Tory MP. Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on your perspective and what you're after. But I think, as you say, particularly when we hear about all these MPs thinking about quitting, and also if you just think about uh, how the Tories are perceived, um, it doesn't seem like the best job in the world right now. But yet, um, I understand there's just a whole host of wannabe Tory MPs, um, you know, at the moment, just going through the very early stages of trying to get selected to be, uh, to go for seats, which won't happen until the spring, summer at the earliest. Um, and why would you want to potentially become a Tory MP at a time when you're, you know, if the polls are correct and stay the way they are, are predicted for 
pretty much an electoral wipeout. I think the short answer is you can get ahead quite quickly. Um, it's much easier to rise up the ranks when your party is in opposition. Um, otherwise, you have to be a glorified bag carrier at best for about five years and be grateful for it. Um, obviously, the slight catch is you need to somehow get one of the very few safe seats. And then secondly, <laughs> um, hope that your party does eventually stop being opposition sooner or later, which is where these things can fall down. Yeah, it's yeah. This this might not be the right type. Might maybe a, a couple of elections down. I mean, previous experience would tell us, you know, if Keir Starmer is going to win the next election, uh, he's he's the Labour Party spent a certain amount of time in the wilderness, and he came in was it in twenty fifteen, Keir Starmer? Um, although twenty or twenty ten, I, well, I can't remember now. Uh, but you know, David Cameron, like he's right, right in the uh, column today, uh, hadn't been in the Commons that long before he became uh, leader in two thousand five. What do you think about this, Manveen? There's a lot of I mean, I sort of admire sometimes the perseverance of someone who decides they want to go into politics. Like the idea that someone thinks, oh, I'm going to become prime minister. There were so many hurdles to get over. I know. I mean, um, I, I can't understand it myself. I'm not, I won't lie. It's not something <laughs> I would rush to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think Katie's right. You know, I, I remember sort of watching this last time the Tories were in the, in the doldrums. You know, I, I first started working in Millbank um, in about sort of 2001 when, when they're, you know, they, they had no particular electoral hope. And you sort of you'd see them, you'd see lots of these very keen young young Tories sort of having dinner together quite often, and many of them ended up in number ten a few years later. So you know, I can see the argument that now is a good time to be getting in if you want to be running the future of the party. I think this, I would only say that um, you know, even if you make it into the shadow cabinet, I'm not I'm not sure how much of an impact that makes for an awfully long time. You know, most people would struggle to name the shadow cabinet in any given year if there's no prospect of them coming to power. And also, I just wonder if, I wonder if the Tory party is almost too broken for that now. You know, in the past, there was always a sense that, you know, you would have a lurch to 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 Labour and then a few years later, there'd be a lurch to the Tories. It just feels like, um you know, Katie in her column mentions this sort of grassroots Tory momentum and they seem to sort of be pushing for a return to the Boris Johnson days. And I sort of think that the Tory party just has this huge identity crisis. And the problem is for people coming in now is working out which version of the Tory party will be electable in the future. Um, and, you know, if you look at sort of polls and you look at sort of uh, younger generations and, and their, you know, where their sort of social values are, I don't know. I think they could be in trouble. Yeah. Th- you know, I think you could end up with people who want to recreate the Boris Johnson days. You know, there was a, there was a sense then that the Red Wall would vote for people who were tougher on social uh, issues. And, and that in the recent polling has sort of shown that actually Red Wall seats are becoming more liberal too. So, you know, I don't know if sort of a party that tries to replicate Boris Johnson and Priti Patel and Suella Braverman will be one of the future. And I don't know if if other candidates will be able to get in because of, as as you know, as Katie wrote, uh, a lot of these people, uh, the grassroots, will be the ones sort of choosing who their candidate is. So, yeah. I don't know. I think I think it's a I think it's a really tough. Uh, you know, kudos to anyone who's even trying it. I I don't know. I don't know. If... And it does seem as if, right? You know, last forty fifty years it does suggest that when a party goes into opposition, they do go a bit man- mad for the first, you know, term. Uh, I think, you know, Ed Miliband then into Jeremy Corbynism for the Labour Party. William Hague tried all sorts of, you know, wrap himself in the flag and save the pound. And, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, Michael Foote, uh, um, after Thatcher um, uh, took over. I was looking back, actually, at the... um, William Hague, talking about who was in the shadow cabinet. William Hague seemed to have a reshuffle. In fact, he had a couple of years. He had two reshuffles in the same year. But his last uh, shadow cabinet going into the 2001 election, William Hague, Michael Tillow, Francis Maud, Anne Widdicombe, Michael Ancrum, 
Theresa May, whatever came of her. There aren't that many people who then went on. In fact, with the possible exception of Theresa May, and actually Francis Maud, I suppose, did make it into the, 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 the cabinet again, Ian Duncan Smith. Quite a lot of those people who, who thought, oh, great, I'm in the shadow cabinet. Uh, never quite um, uh, never quite made it. Right, I'll tell you what, let's move on. Let's talk about Therese Coffey. Um, because why not? Uh, I think in the, in the interest of fairness, let's have a listen to what she actually said yesterday. There's obviously all this talk of uh, people can't buy tomatoes or lettuces, and now we're hearing the news leaks uh, because of crop failures uh, elsewhere in Europe. But let's take a listen to what Therese Coffey actually said. Uh, but it's important to make sure uh, that we cherish the specialisms that we have in this country. Uh, a lot of people would be eating termits right now rather than thinking necessarily about aspects of lettuce and, and, and tomatoes and similar. But I'm conscious that consumers uh, want a year-round choice, and that is what our supermarkets and food and growers, food producers and growers around the world try to satisfy. So this obviously sparks much amusement uh, with uh, let them eat turnips. But she's sort of got a bit of a point, hasn't she, Manveen, that actually it would be better uh, for the environment and actually for British farmers if we ate the stuff like this turnip I've got, uh, rather than just importing stuff and expecting to have absolutely everything uh, on our shelves all year round. Yeah, look, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, we've had a real movement in terms of localism and working out sort of, you know, the provenance of food and, and the air miles it's had and, and trying to eat more locally. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be said for that. But, <laughs> um, you know, as as uh, somebody in charge of DEFRA, she didn't really sort of uh, address the fundamental question, which is that farming in this country is struggling so much. Um, you know, wh- why aren't they producing in- enough enough tomatoes and cucumbers you know polytunnels have been going for an awfully long time this stuff is possible it's just that actually farming has taken such a hit and isn't getting very much support in this country so i'm not sure i'm not sure turnips are necessarily the answer um and you know there is the bigger question about the supply chains and whether whether brexit has made it hard just because of all the extra costs you know europe doesn't seem to be suffering as much um so i i, I you know i uh, to be fair to her I, you know i think turnips aren't a bad thing but uh, you know to be honest i think she's actually got away with it everyone's been so distracted by the turnips she she actually made a much bigger clangor in that speech where she was sort of talking about if you can't afford food because of of inflation yeah more hours which i think is actually um uh, you know should almost have been the bigger headline um i think that will that will cause a lot of offence across the country. And actually, the other thing that, that happened this week, Katie, is she was appeared to have been booed at the NFU conference. It takes quite some skill if you're a Conservative farming minister to go to the NFU conference and get booed, in part because she was saying, uh, I think Manette Batters in the NFU was saying, look, there has been market failure in the egg industry. Costs have gone up so much, people have uh, have moved away from uh, producing eggs. Uh, in the uh, the pig farmers, uh, when they couldn't get, the, you know, this uh, last year, when they couldn't get the butchers, they ended up culling their herds, if that's the right word. Um, and, and she said, no, it's not market failure. It's not market failure. Farmers are literally saying that. We've had to basically do away with our... We've gone bust. We've had to do away with our businesses. And um, that's a bigger problem, isn't it? That Yes, if you can't get tomatoes for a couple of weeks from Spain because they've had a bad crop, that's one thing. But if the British farming industry is uh, withering on the vine, to use a pun, and the, and the Conservative Environment Secretary doesn't appear to be gripped by that as being an issue, that's a bigger political problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen it, though, in the sense the rural vote is actually, which I think in the past was seen as a, a, a Tory safe vote in many in many places, is actually much more competitive and to play for now. So you had the 
uh, the farming conference, as you mentioned, you also had Keir Starmer addressing it. And I think, you know, some of the B2B farming publications were praising Keir Starmer for what he was saying, in contrast with Therese Coffey and suggesting the government is now out of touch. Now, I think in a cost of living crisis, uh, when when uh, the party's been in power so long and lots of the farmers feel as though things like the Australia trade deal on Brexit was something which uh, was not beneficial to UK farmers. And we know the head of the NF. Uh, FU is someone who has really been very critical of some of the Brexiteers in the government who who want to go for competitive free trade deals that they say uh, hurt the farming industry. I think that all piles up and it means that when you're looking for all the reasons the coming election could uh, be very different than what we've had previously in the past, you know, 10 years. Um, I think the fact that there does seem to be this uh, slight turning against the Tories in, in rural parts of uh, the UK is, is really notable and something to keep looking at. Let's turn our attention now to Ukraine. And obviously today marks the first anniversary since the Russian invasion began. And a new YouGov study today looks at the level of public support for helping Ukraine one year into the conflict. Eight in ten Britons say they want Ukraine to win, compared to just 3% of people uh, backing Russia. Interestingly, those figures are virtually unchanged from the, la- from the last time YouGov asked the question back in September. And on our Times Radio focus group uh, this week, which we learned from Wes Street, the Shadow Health Secretary, that's how uh, the Shadow Cabinet find out what the public think. They listen to our focus group. Uh, this, uh, we asked the focus group this week what they uh, wanted the UK and our allies to do in terms of supporting Ukraine. Why can't the rest of the world do something about Putin? Why can he hold a country and Europe to ransom? I don't know why we haven't stepped in. I just can't believe he's, he's got that much power that we're all just sitting on our backsides and not doing anything. I think he should be taken out, arrested or stronger stuff. Uh, so uh, that was what the focus group said. That was uh, people who'd voted uh, Conservative in 2019 and uh, now said they're going to vote uh, Labour. You can hear more from that on the uh, Times Red Box podcast. Let's speak to Matt Smith, Head of Data Journalism at YouGov. Uh, Matt, this is, it's really striking, given the enormous economic impact it's having in the UK in terms of people's energy bills and then feeding through to lots of other things, that public support for Ukraine remains incredibly high. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I suppose it's, it's, it's simply one of those issues that transcends uh, economic self-interest to a, to a large degree. People understand, obviously, uh, you know that this is this is very much a sort of life-threatening thing for the people involved, and that uh, you know almost that it's a sort of good versus evil kind of situation. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, I can totally see why um, you know public opinion has has remained the way it is. I mean, in terms of in terms of that level of support, uh, as you say, it's it's remained very very high. What we are seeing is this ever so slight sort of cooling in a way not not in terms of turning against uh you supporting ukraine but we're seeing these ever so slight um increase in sort of disinterest if you will so the number of people for instance who said that um they care a great deal about the outcome of the war in russia and ukraine has has slipped fractionally and gone to uh, and and you've seen a sort of concurrent increase in the number of saying people saying they only care a fair amount there's only a very small change but obviously that's kind of indicative of a you know a slight maybe a very slight fatiguing in the situation or alternatively what we've also seen is that the number of people who think um 
that the West is now providing enough support to Ukraine to stop Russia winning has increased. That's still a very minority view. You're still only seeing about uh, maybe one in five people who think that, but it has gone up a bit. So what that could be reflecting as well is potentially the fact that um, uh, we uh, these people uh, think that enough has been done yeah. to to stop Ukraine losing the war, and therefore they they don't need to worry about it so much. It's interesting, um, uh, Katie, looking at this poll, that the support for Ukraine is much higher in Britain than it is in France, Spain and Italy. And I wonder if that that actually is either as a result of of people agreeing with particularly what Boris Johnson did by being really on the front foot in terms of the support, but also he's sort of taken the country with him. Yeah, and I think that uh, ultimately, Brits on all sides are proud of how the UK has mm. behaved on this. And I think when you see Ukrainian politicians describing Britain as one of their best friends in, in this in the conflict, it's something which, you know, touches you regardless of your own party politics. Um, but I also do think as a country, it's also the case that our political leaders are slightly also reflecting the mood. Um, and and therefore, I think if we had a political leader break rank and say, well, we don't actually think you should do this. Um, I, I think that uh, where the public are, it would be separate to that. And therefore, it's a little bit more to do with these uh, you know, European leaders, the conversations in those countries. Um, and some of the fact that some of these places have always been a bit more kind of open to Russia for, for various reasons. Um, Marvin, I know you've covered this an awful lot uh, um, over the last uh, twelve months, and you've got a, you've been speaking to Catherine Philp for the for the stories of our times podcast today. Yeah, that's right. Just looking at sort of the cultural impact, you know, so so much of this war was as, as much about a, a war of identity and culture um, as a physical war. So that's the sort of aspect we look at in the podcast today. Um, and you know, I agree with Katie. I think there is a huge support for it in this country at the moment, which almost sort of transcends what we're being told by politicians. Every time a politician wants to do better, they go and visit Kiev because they know that'll be great for their reputation at the moment. Um, and and you know, I I, I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Katie Balls and Manvin Rana there, and you can listen to Manvin's special episode all about the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Types, uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Right, let's talk about turnips. There was lots of turnip chat on my show today after Therese Coffey said maybe we should be thinking about eating turnips rather than, as she described it, thinking about aspects of lettuce uh, during the shortage of tomatoes and so on. So uh, where better to go and talk turnips than the restaurant and fruit and veg shop Turnips, which is in Borough Market, which is barely a turnips throw from Red Box Towers. So I headed over there and spoke to the head chef, Thomas, and Charlie Foster, whose family has been uh, running uh, uh, turnips in the market for, what, 30, 40 years. And I started off by asking him, what's just all about fruit and veg? I mean, I think probably on the stand right now, maybe 250 different products, um, three varieties of turnips. Three varieties varieties of turnips, yeah. So we, we, try, we try and pick the very, very best of any certain variety. So they might not be super unusual, but it is unusual because it's the most world-class product that we can find, hopefully. Yeah. So this has been going for, what, 30, 40 years? Yeah, but 35 years in Borough Market, so before the retail kicked off and, yeah, family business all the way. Yeah. But then during uh, the pandemic, you opened a restaurant here. 
We did, yeah. We, we might be considered absolutely mental for trying to do that. But it's still here. It's still it wasn't, here. wasn't all that mental. Yeah, luckily Tom's the only one stupid enough to give it a go with me. So we, um, Tom, Tom was a good friend of mine and we served him while he was at City Social. So tried his food, it was unbelievable. So we just thought, if ever something popped up, he's the man to yeah. call. Something did pop up. We had what? Was it two weeks, Tom? Yeah, two weeks. Yeah. Right. yeah, there was actually two weeks to build from scratch, you know, in the uh, two-ton container, dragging in, doing a service, pulling out, putting tables and chairs, cooking it back in a little tiny area. What did you have yeah. to cook with, though? What was your co- main cooking apparatus? Uh, it was a barbecue from <laughs> Charlie's uh, dad's garden. <laughs> uh, so we uh, forklifted it for the yeah. service and then put it back again. And then, yeah, at the back, a couple stoves and then a uh, water bath. That's what we had. And how difficult was it? Because I remember, because the Times Red is literally just around the corner, I booked a table here uh, at some point in those early stages, and then I think it was cancelled because another lockdown came around. How difficult was it trying to get a restaurant off the ground where you didn't know from almost one day to the next whether or not you're going to be open? Yeah, but that's, you know, that, that was a massive challenge, but then, as Charlie said, probably was stupid enough just to go straight in and then just do it with no thinking, because the whole story of turnips i think of the actual restaurant is without thinking and doing on the spot as you know the same as the vegetables comes in so it was exactly the same thing with us you know our minds were set we have to do the best at our abilities with the best products we can so yeah. and the whole point is it's not just a restaurant which is near a fruit and veg stall it's it's all the the produce and showcasing in the best possible way yeah so we especially now these days we wrap everything around about surplus yeah. so that's the main key probably for us to to cook it and showing to people that it doesn't have to be expensive we still can make like amazing food from anything to be fair um that is a you know challenge for the chefs but i've got amazing brigade which you know drives me and then i drive them so and you're doing a thing at the moment this week aren't you particularly about surplus and 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 ugly veg and you know that it's all good stuff yeah, so this is our second week now, and we're extending for two more weeks because we're richly overwhelmed by people, you know, coming in and then dining with us. We're all basically fully booked every night, and then people enjoying that, and then they can't, you know, they're still getting amazed how we can do that. And then, you know, it's good for Charlie because, you know, he doesn't need to waste anything, and it's amazing for us because we can cook with a great product, which doesn't look amazing, but inside is still beautiful. So, so explain what it is. So it's, it's veg that you've bought in to sell on the stall. Yeah doesn't sell might have gone a bit over yeah. but rather than chucking it out you're like you can cut that up well so it's exactly that and we've gone a little bit further afield this time as well we're, we're trying to challenge what people perceive as being surplus it's not poor quality actually it means that we can have wild mushrooms still now even when we're trying to do a cheaper mu- because it just doesn't have a commercial home yeah. so i might have overbought we might have lost a you know maybe a restaurant order that didn't need it in the end same thing happens with the supermarkets this time instead of just internally we've reached out to all our suppliers and friends in the market and anything they think they're not going to sell or they know they can get hold of because normally there's not a home for it we're taking it so we can get it much cheaper normally but it's still absolutely incredible so that, i mean you've got to really taste it to believe what tom's doing with it all but i'd like to i can't get a table <laughs> <laughs> is there anything if he comes and says look i've really overordered i've got way too many of these is there something that you would just dread and think that i can't do anything with that yeah is uh, chanterelle's mushrooms? Uh, yeah, so they're pain in the ass to to clean because they're super tiny and then got lots of bits and bobs inside. So then that takes probably a day to wash a three kilo box, you know, to serve to customers. So probably that's why you know people not buying it because it's a lot tedious work. Um, Just but stop ordering. Yeah, <laughs> but the thing is they are amazing. To be oh, fair, okay, you know, yeah. the flavour when you pan fry them, go deep, deep caramelisation of the actual mushroom is just stunning. So you know, people can enjoy now we need to talk about turnips. Yes. 
Do you have to include turnips in every dish? <laughs> Are you smuggling it in? What's the best way to cook a turnip? Uh, no, turnip doesn't make it to every single dish, but um, you know when we've got loads of that. So, for example, what, last week we had a beautiful pollock from the next door neighbour. So they literally got that from a boat night before, brought it in, we prepped it, and then the garnish was as simple as that. For example, you take your turnip, which is two different, so you see them, they look different and they taste different as well. So there's one that's, that's so probably that's the one you'd turnip. imagine, yeah, the white one with turnip. the purple on the top. Yeah, so that's a real turnip, which is a yeah. bit more bitter, it's a bit different. Yeah. And the Tokyo turnip, it is probably as as stunning radish as you can get. Yeah. So if you imagine a breakfast radish, it's still a bit bitter. This one you can eat it raw. So yeah. that was a dish. So that's like a very round and completely white. Yeah, so the leaves, some people call it chima di rapa, which is a turnip tops. So from that, we made kind of a pesto. Yeah. And then from the actual ones, we just pickled 40% of them and then 60% was diced raw. And that was a garnish for the fish. And as, as simple as that gets, that's absolutely amazing because they really like buttery, no bitterness and harshness in them. And so presumably you both agree with what Therese Coffee was saying, that actually we should be eating seasonal stuff grown in this country, not relying on stuff imported all the time. It, 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 that is, you know, I absolutely agree with this, but then is there some things, you know, we have, but then the other countries might have it better, and that's their surplus, yeah. you know what I mean? So they have to utilise as well, because, you know, it's not just, yes, UK, but then, you know, Italy or France, they might have way too much, and then people think the same, oh, we're not going to use it because it's too expensive or something. So, you know, we kind of trying to do globally to be fair, you know? A slight difference in opinion. Yes, you should eat seasonal, absolutely. Yeah. But we have some really great neighbours that have some phenomenal products. <clears throat> it's a shame how it's going with Brexit. The prices are getting so tough. But we believe in kind of an international seasonality. So, yes, turnips are in season. You can get incredible ones from England. So we should go there first. But also, why turn down an incredible white asparagus? It's be much better to buy a white asparagus grown properly in France before than buy something that's been mass-produced in a tunnel. Yeah. from England, right? That's, that's the slight difference that we have. It's yeah. about how it's grown, how it's produced. Seasonality gets even deeper than just where is it grown. It's a, that's almost a tick box exercise. The reason we're in such a problem now with the supermarket is because they've, they've built conglomerate farms. So actually, if they have a problem with one farmer, it affects the whole supply chain. So <clears throat> we're saying get, get away from that as much as possible. Focus on the niche suppliers that produce world-class, incredible stuff. There's plenty still left in England. There's plenty in France and in Italy. Lovely stuff. Now that's all your weekend cookery needs sorted. Right, up next, it's Fuella Benjamin. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. 
Yes, it's award season, but never mind the Brits, the BAFTAs, the Grammys or the Oscars. The big gongs everyone's talking about are the Parliamentary Book Awards. And, uh, well, because they couldn't get Richard E. Grant or Mo Gilligan, I am hosting them. It is politicians who've written books, people who've written books about politics. And it's uh, probably about time for the awards to begin. <laughs> Everyone's better judgment. I've been given the gold. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? Put your clapping hands together. It's the last time you have to do it. The winner is the fall of Boris Johnson. <laughs> well, I think I got away with that without saying anything too rude, apart from about Matt Hancock. But uh, let's see if we can grab. I'll be honest, I'm only really here because I want to try and grab uh, Fluella Benjamin. So let's see if we can find her. Get ready to play. So, Fluella Benjamin, Baroness Benjamin. First of all, it's very exciting to meet actual Fluella Benjamin from Play School. Can I just get that out of the way now? <laughs> I know. You're one of my Play School babies, Matt. I am. And I've got millions of Play School babies who treat me with such love and affection. And I feel a blessed woman. And why do you think that is? Because it's... You know, we're not getting any younger. It's a long time ago now. Was it 1988 it stopped? Late 80s? That's right. Why, what was it about Play School, do you think, that, that means that people... Because TV programmes come and go so much. What was it about Play School that means that even now people feel so affectionate and passionate and emotional about it? I found Play School a vacation of love. It wasn't, you know, a vocation of dedication to those young children, these young minds, because I realised that childhood lasts a lifetime, and I wanted to give every single child watching the programme that feeling that they were loved unconditionally. And people tell me that, you know, when they watched me, they felt as if I loved them, and I meet them today when they're now in their 40s or 50s and say, tell me you love me because I knew when I watched you I knew when you spoke to me you were speaking to me and me alone because when I said hello is everything all right you might be sitting in a children's home somewhere where nobody loved you but I was asking the question or they might be sitting in a palace I was asking the question so childhood means that if you do it the right way from the very beginning it'll stay with them and many of my books I've got a book called come into England uh, for four to seven-year-olds, and all the teachers now were my play school babies, and they're now teaching children about me, and so they've got a real person to tell to the little child in their class, I know that woman, and she loved me, and she loves you too. So love matters. We should talk about childhood, because the reason you're here, or the reason we're talking now, is because you've just won a, the Parliamentary Book Award for your book, What Are You Doing Here? Which is... A, about your arriving in the UK and adjusting to life in the UK, um, what was your childhood like? I had a wonderful, wonderful childhood in Trinidad. I had two of the most amazing parents. My father, who was like a philosopher, an adventurer, he used to tell us about the world. He said, there's a world out there for you to go and discover. But it was my mum who told us how to discover that world, <laughs> how, to, how to capture that world. She gave us that kind of love and that self-belief and that confidence to go out and do that. And she used to pour cod liver oil into me every day. That's why I look so good at the 70. <laughs> I was going to ask, but it turns out that's the answer. <laughs> and so, and she used to say, education is your passport to life. And if you have an education, no one will be able to take it away from you. So we went to school and we learned. In Trinidad, where I was born, 
Uh, we sang God Save the Queen every day. We told them we were part of the motherland. We were told we were British. And, to, and we learned about British heroes and British explorers and British writers and poets. But when I came to Britain, my life changed because it wasn't like that. The, the idyllic life that I had in Trinidad suddenly turned to this cold, uninviting, you know, dangerous, literally dangerous place to be part of. But because I knew I was loved, because I knew how to face adversity, because of the, the love and the joy and the confidence my parents gave me, I could battle through. And that's why I pour love into people, because once you know it's love, you know. Your book is called What Are You Doing Here? And it's because at various stages of your life, when you first came as a child, when you tried to get in TV, now you're in politics. That's the question you get asked. When has it been most difficult when you've been asked that question? It's always been difficult, but I've always had an answer. When people say, what are you doing here? I say, I'm here to change the world and to make life better for the future. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And that is how I cope. I never get angry. I never get bitter. And as I said in my speech, um, when I was appointed to the Order of Merit, it's because the Queen had read my autobiography and she felt two days before she died she wanted to appoint me into the Order of Merit. And the Queen and I, have we've got history. Because... Go on then, let's, let, let's explore the history of you and the Queen. This is good. <laughs> well, I've met the Queen several times, yeah. but the time that when we really connected was when she came to Exeter, and I was the first oh, course, yeah. black woman chancellor of a UK university, Exeter University, and she came there for her Diamond Jubilee. And being the chancellor, I had to show her around and to introduce her to everyone, and then we sat and we had lunch together. And the Queen was one of the most amazing people you could ever meet. She was like a walking encyclopedia. She had a great sense of humour. And we talked about everything, about her family, about food, about children, about politics, the House of Lords. And I thought, this woman is so open with me. Maybe I'll tell her my story. So I said, you know, Mum, when I was a little girl in Trinidad, I sang God Save the Queen in the Playground. I was told I was British. But when I came here, it wasn't like that. I had to face so much adversity. But... I faced the challenge and all the people were horrible to me I've forgiven them all I've forgiven I have no hatred in my heart because if you have hatred in your heart you remain a victim and she looked back at me I remember she sat back in her chair and her blue eyes sparkled and she said you know listening to you speak like this reminds me of my conversations with Nelson Mandela because he too has that same philosophy he too believes in forgiveness. And when you think about her, she went and she shook Martin McGuinness's hand in Northern Ireland. Yeah. What she had been through, she found deep in her spiritual soul that was the right thing to do. So I think when she read the book, because she was in the book, and there's a picture of her and me in the back yeah. of, the, of the book, I think that reminded her of our conversations. And I have a feeling that's one of the reasons why she, she said she wants to appoint me. And to, also to say, because she believed in, in the Commonwealth as well, and to also say to people from my generation, from people from my part of the world, anything is possible. That little girl standing in the playground, look how she can rise. And if you feel that you can... Keep bitterness out of your heart, have faith, have that spiritualness about yourself, you will rise. I know everything happens for a reason, and every disappointment is an appointment with something better. What amazing uh, 
reaction to what has been a tough time at times. Do you wonder also whether... Because, um, I mean, William and Harry are sort of my age. Were they watching you? Have you met them? Do they remember you on the telly as well? Yeah, I think they do, because I've met... Um, oh. Prince William, he came to unveil the Windrush Monument that I was in charge of. At Waterloo. That's right, the one in in last year, last Windrush Day. And uh, in his speech, he said, and I remember Floella (laughs) (laughs) on the telly making us all smile. So I think, you know, they grew up watching me. And as I said, it doesn't matter whether you live in a castle, a palace or a tower block somewhere. Childhood matters Mm. and love is love is everything. And how does it feel for you when you have this incredible child in Trinidad singing God Save the Queen and thinking about Britain and then you've met the Queen and now the future King as well but also there's been lots of questions about the royal family's history and currently in the relationship with race where are you in that debate because some people say there's you know it's a, it's mad having a royal family you know it's an incredibly old-fashioned thing do you think there is a place for a royal family in a sort of modern 21st century Britain I think Prince Charles is the perfect person to bridge that gap. Prince Charles is a very wise man. I remember writing to him in 1984, thanking him for showing others that diversity matters, showing him the environment matters, showing him showing the world childhood matters. So I have great faith in someone like him bridging that gap and taking yeah. us to the next plateau in life. And to have that vision and that wisdom in your mind, you need to be a tough person. And I think he's tough enough to be able to do that for us because it's going to make a difference to our country. Whatever, how he reigns will matter in 50 years' time. And I feel he's probably the best person to bridge the gap from the Queen to William. He has got an incredible job to do. And we all need to make sure that, he, that the country benefits. If you take something away... What are you going to replace it with? Until you've decided what's going to replace it with, you work with what you have. And remember, as I say, everything happens for a reason. Uh, one thing, reading your book and, and looking at that whole period of politics when you came to the UK, it wasn't long, before, uh, long after you had Enoch Powell, Rivers of Blood, terrible thing, all these people coming from around the world. And actually, no one would argue it's been plain sailing. There's still lots of inequality. But we haven't had rivers of blood. And actually, instead, what we've seen is the party that Enoch Powell was part of is led by, increasingly, a very diverse bunch of people. Rishi Sunak, James Cleverley, Priti Patel, Suella Braverman. You know, people whose actually their, their families have come from precisely the places. So when you were sort of arriving in the UK, when you sort of look back, in the end, Enoch Powell was just wrong, wasn't he? Very much so, and I think the future is going to prove him even more wrong because when you go into a classroom, and I do a lot of school visits, <laughs> at least one in three children in that classroom is from a biracial kind of relationship. And what the future holds is people understanding that we are in this together and we have to make this country a a prime example to the rest of the world. And I think Britain is one of the best places to be brought up in. It shows the diversity of the country, the tolerance of the country, and that's what really matters. And I'm so proud that I can influence children. Because my book came into England. I have four and seven-year-olds reading this because I wrote the the, the adult, the, 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 the older children's version in 1994. Two years ago, I wrote the picture book version uh, and four for 47-year-olds. And 
Every day, almost every single day, I get a letter or I get a bunch of letters from the children who are re- reading the book or a message saying, Dear Floella Benjamin, I know all about Windrush, I know all about Trinidad, and I want to go there one day, but most of all, I want to grow up to be you wow. and meet the Queen. Yeah. Those are white children. Yeah. So just think how their perception of life yeah, is going change. to be yeah. in 20, 30, 40 years' time. They're going to be the ones in charge. So that's why I'm a very optimistic person. I will see the good, the good in life, and I'm not going to allow hatred to, mm. to de- determine my way of thinking. I just want to ask you about the state of kids' TV. And uh, anyone who's got children will be thinking about how do you get them off YouTube? How do you get them off TikTok? It's just not as good as proper kids' TV. But also it doesn't have that sort of, you know, with smuggling your vegetables underneath the good stuff. Anything you want to eat, you can buy it at the supermarket. <laughs> you didn't like the sound of that, did you, Cuckoo? <laughs> What do you think about the environment that, you know, part of the reason why people love play school and you so much is because there was nothing else on. It was a, a communal experience and all that. What do you think now about the impact of flicking through TikTok and YouTube and it's, a lot of it is rubbish? What I'm saying to people, it doesn't matter where children are watching content, but the content has to be what will make children holistically feeling good about who they are doesn't matter where it's coming from, content matters. And if we get good content, and in fact, just two weeks ago, I had a meeting here for an all-party group. I'm chair of the all-party group for children's Mm. media and arts. And that's the message I'm saying to the broadcasters, to program makers, to people, writers, to understand that content matters for children, for childhood last a lifetime. And if you want people who are well-rounded, who know about empathy and understanding, about trust, morality, integrity and honesty, and to be the person that you can trust in this world, make sure the content that you give children develop their minds in a positive way like that. Up next, though, are bookshops doing very well? Isn't everyone just on TikTok these days? Turns out that's not totally true. I'm going to speak to someone from the Booksellers Association. Apparently, we're reading more books than ever. But I'm really keen to find out, is anyone actually buying these books that all these people have won? So let's try and track down Debbie James, who is the vice president of the Booksellers Association. So now, in the very glamorous corridor in Parliament, uh, where we've been uh, trying to grab people, I'm joined by Debbie James. Go on then, plug plug your bookshops first. So, uh, Kibworth Books and Dacre Books. First one being New Books and second one, Rare and Antiquarian. So, here's an interesting thing. In the modern world, aren't we all spending our entire lives scrolling through mind-mushing TikTok videos and everyone stopped reading books? Yeah, some people are, aren't they? But... um, I don't know, don't want to be too controversial, but perhaps correct thinking people are still coming into bookshops. They want to smell the books. They want to touch the books. They want to talk to other humans about books. And what about the state of independent booksellers in particular? Are they, how are they doing in this, you know, difficult environment? This is an exciting news story. So um, amongst gloomy news stories at the start of the year, um, the Booksellers Association, as they do every year, um, we released membership figures. Independent bookshops are now at a 10-year high. So during even the dreaded COVID years, the lockdown years, people were at home. They were thinking about um, their careers. Is this how I want to spend my life? And 
three figures worth of people thought, no, I want to be a bookseller, I want to open a bookshop, and they, they flip and did it. Do you think it's because um, in a world where everything now is on a screen, whether it's, you know, you can watch a film at home, which is rather than going to the cinema, you can watch the telly, you can look on your phone, that actually, I mean, the reason I like reading books is because it, it's not going to pop up with a notification. Right, it's a, it's a total break from all of that, isn't it? Netflix, um, for example, and other streaming services um, are great fun and movies, absolutely, but you're right. I think we, we do benefit from concentrating and um, just indulging ourselves intellectually and emotionally in something that can last for one, two, three hours, days, weeks, and that's... Months in my case, because it not be months to finish a book. There you go. Absolutely. Grab yourself a 900-pager. No, I'm just a very slow reader. <laughs> just a pamphlet then. And tell me about, then, you're talking about the warmth and the touching of books. Give me some of the secrets that successful independent bookshops do that make people like me, who are slow readers, come in, because I know I like a bookshop, start fingering some books, end up buying a book, which I don't read for months, years, maybe not at all, how, how do you do that? And why are independent bookshops better at it than sort of a big chain or a supermarket? OK, so that book you cannot resist. It's beautiful and you've, you've never seen it before. Right. It's got a quirky title. You open it up and you read a paragraph and it just calls to you, perhaps. And that's how we, we're curating that collection for you to be lured by, quite simply. And that is a collection in my bookshop versus... Um, my friends who have bookshops their bookshops um, they're all different they're different collections and you will find something serendipitously that you would never expect to see anywhere else you've never seen it anywhere else but you must have it and where do you stand on ploughing on with a book that you're not enjoying or do you chuck it to one side and look at something because my it's the big big division in our house I will stop reading a book and my wife will plough on with for months moaning about it I want to stop reading. She said, I can't stop reading. I've got to finish it. Where do you stand on that? Give it up. Yeah. Give it up straight away. Um, not least because it will send you back to my bookshop for a new one. Yeah. Uh, you don't care if we don't read uh, it. Just d- read the, <laughs> perhaps read the title page. Yeah. Um, the, the barcode. That's it. And uh, finally then, people listening to this, never mind the political books. What's your current? Somebody comes into your bookshop and the, like, the big book that everyone that nobody knows about yet, there would be the thing that you were like, you are going to love this. It's lovely and warm and cosy in here. It smells lovely. This is the book I'm going to put into your hands. Debbie, what are you going to suggest? Yeah, OK. Um, I'm going to go with a book by Jyoti Patel, and it's called Things That We Lost. And it's, it's not a straightforward book. It's not a laugh a minute, but it's really important. It's extremely readable and... It's, you know, you're not going to find it in the chain bookstores, probably. I mean, you should, because it's brilliant. But, yeah, it's... Come come to independent bookshops for a book like that. It's a wonderful novel by a brilliant debut writer, um, published by Murky Books. Yeah. just You just don't... Just come to an indie for recommendations like that. That's very good. Finally, what's the worst book you've ever read? Um, I haven't got past the title bit. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I read a sentence and it was rubbish times... 20 at least so yeah scrap them 
That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.